Thank you so much, Taylor. Taylor, I want to say on behalf of the whole church that we appreciate that you appreciate the terry cloth. So we are grateful for your insight and your fashion sense. It's so good to be. By the way, uh, at, while Taylor was giving those announcements, uh, it's been reported to me. He told me a fly flew into his mouth. And he's so committed to this church and clear communication that he swallowed the fly and kept, yep, kept powering through. Can we give a round of applause to commitment? It's a rare thing in this world, Taylor. We're going to remember that when your year-end review hits, okay? It's so great to be with you all. Happy 3rd of July. That fell really quietly. I guess 4th is the big one. But 3rd, I mean, the founding fathers were thinking things through. Like, are we going to do this? I don't know. John Hancock was ready, dude. He's like, oh, I'm going in, all in. The next day, he regretted it. He was like, what did I do? Why did I sign it so big? But those are some patriotic jokes. Thought I'd start off with that, warm up the crowd. And it's summertime. It's my favorite time to be alive. And I'm so thankful. My name is James, one of the team members here at the River Church of the South End of the Santa Monica Bay. And this morning, we are teaching on parables. As Taylor said, I want to start with a question. I want to start with a little a question. Um, when was the last time that you were absolutely captivated by someone or something? When was the last time that you were like totally captivated? You're like, whoa. Okay, stop and think for a second. When was the last time you were really kind of swept off your feet? Maybe it was romantically. Maybe it was a sunset. Maybe it was uh, a concert or something. So think for a second. All right, tell the person next to you. Talk, talk to each other real quick. Take a minute and just let them know. When was the last time, if you could think, and if you're sitting next to your spouse, you better get this one right. And if you're watching at home, talk to your gerbil or something about it. Okay, do we have any good ones? Any, anyone that you think you heard and you want it to be shared? Anyone? Any thoughts? Any good ones? Absolutely captivated. Well, good. I've prepared some of my own. The whole sermon is an excuse for me to tell personal stories to a semi-captive audience. Um, I'll never forget this one. And, I, and my wife will be at the next service, so I'll, re I'll retell it again. But when I was, it was June 12th, 2004, right there at Veterans Park, Redonda Beach, California, a day not unlike this day, I was standing in all white, I had long blonde hair, and I was a baby. I was a baby of 22 years old, just a little, little guy. And I was standing at the altar, and I, looking at all these friends and family, my parade of groomsmen to my left, and I watched this limo door open and this white dress. It's imprinted in my brain. Just that flash of this white dress, it poof, flowed right out of that limo. And then looking at Bray as she walked down the aisle. I, it was truly like they say, like one of those moments where everything zooms in and all you see is this amazing beauty. So whenever I officiate, and if you ever are at a wedding I'm officiating, or if I've officiated your wedding, you'll notice that as the bride is coming down, I love, the, I love watching the bride, and then I look over at the groom. 
and I just want to see the face. I want to see the face of the man. And it's always the same except for one time. One guy was obliterately drunk and it didn't go well. I'm sure the marriage isn't doing well either, not because of the drunkenness only, but there was a lot of things there. Footnote, but every other time of the 20 plus times I've done it, you look over, you look over and there's just emotions on people that are normally stoic. And on those that are like me, emotional people, it's like flood, snot cry, just joy, because they're seeing something and they say, all the nerves are just gone. And it's like, I am so glad I'm right here. I'll never forget that. Another time I was absolutely captivated seeing my, my oldest, my daughter, sort of first child, all my kids, it was beautiful seeing them for the first time, no doubt. There's something about your, you know, my oldest, my, my only baby girl. And when I first saw her, I was, I just lost it. It was like, <laughs> I was, the birthing process is a horrific thing. In my opinion, I'm just like, this is not good. It's just not beautiful. It's so beautiful. Bray did it all natural, not to go too many details here. It was a very, you know, no, no, no meds, nothing. And I'm like, this is horrific. Knock me out. Can I have her meds? Is there like a cup somewhere I can use them? But when that, when Michelli, I first saw her, it was over. Uh, and his video of it, I was like, I'll buy you a million princess dresses. It was just a moment of absolute, absolute being captivated. Um, and now she's 12 going on 22 and beautiful. Uh, there's this great shirt. She actually pointed out to me. It says, yes, I know I have a beautiful daughter. I also have a shotgun, a shovel, and an alibi. I'm like, that is a great shirt. God bless the person that made that shirt. <laughs> captivated. There are something about those moments when you see something or you're in the presence of something and it's like everything is muted but this thing. And you are like, I will go anywhere or do anything to stay here or to care for this or to nurture this or to devote myself to this. And as we look at the parables, Jesus of Nazareth, I'm captivated by Jesus. And many of you have been captivated by Jesus. I would love to do a series one time where we literally just say, like, why I'm captivated by Jesus. And we take our whole teaching team and I say, I want you to, let's go through and each person shares, like, why are you captivated? What is it about this Jesus of Nazareth that has so captured you? Jesus is a captivating figure and a captivating teacher. And we're looking at his teaching, specifically these parables. And today I have the joy of looking at one of the tiny itty bitty ones that's my absolute favorite. It's actually a couplet. It's two for the price of one. It's like when you reach for a cookie and there are two stuck together and federal law says, nope, that's just one. You can eat them both for the same calorie intake. There's two stuck together, but this is um, in Matthew, the good news story, the biography of Jesus, the gospel of Matthew. There are these chunks of teaching. There's one in Matthew 5 through 7, one in Matthew 10, one in Matthew 13, Matthew 18, and Matthew 24. They call them like the five discourses of Jesus. Scholars are really good at taking cool things and making them sound terribly boring. Okay, but in the middle of one of these, chapter 13, is this sort of collection and cluster of a bunch of Jesus' parables. His parables. And what's interesting about parables, and Bill set this up so well for us, and Todd just knocked it out of the park last week as well, uh, talking about the parable of the weeds and the wheat. The thing about parables is, it's so Jesus the way he uses them. 
In the ancient world, a parable was generally supposed to take a complex issue or a moral issue and make it simple. That was the goal of a parable, generally speaking. Jesus, of course, in his so darn Jesus way, is so brilliant, he goes, no, I'm doing something a little bit different with these. I'm going to take parables and I'm going to use them to force you into seeing something that you've seen a million times in a fresh way. I'm going to take your vantage point and flip it around and kind of sometimes trouble you by it. Like, oh boy, that, that makes me ask really interesting questions. And sometimes give you a fresh glimpse of something that maybe you were once captivated by and you sort of become numb to. What once grabbed your imagination and your attention and your heart and your time and your money and your life and your resources was at some point as you get older, I'm 40 years old now, four zero, there is literally three gray hairs in my mustache. I saw them yesterday, three of them. We don't know how many there will be this time next year, but I'm getting there, I'm getting old. And the older you get, young guns out there, it's weird how you can become meh about stuff. And I'm an easily excitable person, as many of you know. I can become overwhelmed with excitement and emotion and joy at things very easily. And it's genuine. I'm not ginning it up to try to seem like an excitable person. I just can't help it. But even me, sitting on a beach with the largest body of water on this planet right there, it could sometimes be like, oh yeah, it's just my beach service. We meet there. Sometimes life and experience, things that are exciting become kind of meh. And so Jesus tells parables sometimes to shock us out of that. And the last thing I want to say about parables before we read it, because it's a short one. I, gotta, I just want to front load it a little bit. Parables were not meant, as I started saying, and then I got lost. Parables were not meant to take a complex issue and make it simple. They were actually kind of insider conversation. It's like insider conversation. It was, Jesus says this word a lot. Those who have ears, let them hear. He was so, he had such a quiet confidence. I grew up, or when I was a young gun, I was a, a youth pastor, junior high pastor. And I love youth pastors. And I just think like, Luke, we love you so much. And we are so thankful for the ministry. You and Brittany love on our kids and, and work with our kids and test this summer, just investing in the most important thing. As a youth pastor in the late 90s and early 2000s though, and Bill can testify to this, sometimes you want to like sell Jesus. Like Jesus is cool, kids. Zip, zing, zing, bounce house, pizza, popcorn, Jesus. And you really want kids to think how cool Jesus is. The Bible's the coolest book ever. And they read it and they're like, it's ancient Mediterranean literature. I mean, it's not that cool. You're like, yeah, okay. No, it's cool. Jesus wasn't running around trying to do that. He wasn't selling himself to people. If anything, he knew that those who are gonna see it and hear it, they, won't, they can't help but follow me. And his teaching sometimes was intentionally saying, do you really want to follow me? Do you really want to know the truths of reality and God? Then I'm going to tell it to you, but you're going to have to think. You're going to have to walk on a journey with me through this. Okay, so here's the parable. It's very short. It's in the middle of Matthew 13, verses 44 to 46. 
And if you're following along in your Bible or translation, mine might not look like yours. I'm going to translate it just so you think I'm smart. What is it like, or the kingdom of God, kingdom of God is like this, or the kingdom of the heavens. It's like a treasure that's hidden in a field somewhere. Like a treasure that's hidden in a field somewhere. And when the man found it, when the character in this parable finds it, he rehides it. And in his joy, he departs and he sells everything. I love how the Greek goes. He literally in like Yoda speak, which is like, if you read the Greek word for word, it sounds like Yoda talking. He says, he sold all as much as he had and he bought the field. He bought that field. Again, what is the kingdom of heavens like? It is like a man who is a merchant, a merchant who is seeking a really good pearl, a really wonderful pearl. He's on the quest for the perfect pearl and finding one of extreme value. He goes away, he sells all as much as he had, and he buys it. He buys it. This is a simple parable, and so I don't want to do the typical move I am prone to, which is overcomplicate and overexposit and add layers to it needlessly. I want to keep this really simple. First of all, Jesus is talking about his favorite teaching topic. This thing in Greek called the basileia to theu, the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about this thing more than anything. And if you have people in your life that are really excited about something specific, and you know that it's just, you have like a bingo card out for when they start talking about it. Okay, we're 10 minutes into the conversation. Here comes that topic. Boom, they're talking about it again because they're passionate about it. They're excited about it. Jesus, when, for him, the, this thing he called the kingdom of God, the imperial rule of God, the rule and reign of his heavenly father. He talks about it 61 times in the gospels. 85 if you count parallels, which is exact teachings that are replicated in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He loves talking about this topic. And here he gives us an angle of it the kingdom of God, which essentially I'll define as like the rule and reign of God. It's that, it's that topography, it's that space, it's that, uh, those communities where God's intentions and God's will and God's rule is being, um, is being lived out, where things operate according to God's intentions. The rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God. And so here, he compares it to two things, the treasure in the field and this pearl of great price. Interesting, it's so funny that um, Joe and Barbara came up and shared today. Do you know what the Greek term for pearl is? Does anyone know that? What's the Greek term for pearl? I'm not making this up. I tell my Greek students this every time we go over this passage. It's margarita. I'm not kidding you. And there is, there's zero historical connection to that term and the beverage. It's just the term, margarita. So it makes interesting reading, like, don't throw your margaritas at swine, Matthew 7. Uh, 
and the new heavens and new earth, there's going to be at each of those gates a margarita. And here, of course, a margarita of great price. Okay, there's my margarita jokes. But there's two things I want to emphasize here. First of all, notice the, the fact that this person finds this treasure or finds this pearl and they're captured by it. They just, I, this, is what I, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I want. This is where I'm at. And they, they go all in. I mean, they do kind of, we would think of it as reckless investment, like diversify people. Don't put everything in one pearl, especially commodities, especially with inflation. No, I'm and this person sees it and he says, yeah, I want that. I'm going all in. They're captivated, absolutely captivated by it. Uh, and for many of us, like, especially if you've either grown up in the church or you've been around the things of Jesus for a long time, and I, I, I certainly have, and I'm so thankful to have, but you can get used to certain truths and realities, like the God of the universe, of the cosmos, of the quasars, the one who created everything, somehow cares about me and I can communicate with that God. That's mind-blowing. That's crazy. It's wonderful. And yet, sometimes it gets kind of basic. The fact, like, like uh, Taylor brought up today, just love how he slipped it into the announcements. Like, we are a people of grace. The truth is you cannot earn anything. You're not a good little boy and good little girl and you look good and smell good and do good things. And therefore God's like, ooh, I like this one. What's your name? It has nothing to do with that. It's God's love for you. That's a radical story of life. That's a radical story of reality. That's a really fascinating, but sometimes it gets kind of basic. I remember when I was, um, I was a surf camp instructor when I was in high uh, college, early college, and I, I would be a surf instructor down in Manhattan Beach and love Manhattan Beach. I love the place. Great spot. Wonderful place. Worked there many years. Love it. But some of the students I would have would have like strand houses and hill houses, really, really nice setups. I mean, I'm talking really good things. And they come down to the beach. I didn't grow up with that kind of setup myself. And so for me, the beach is a special, it's a very special place. I love it. I'm, I'm, I truly am. It's my favorite spot. It's my happy place. And I'm, I'm daily, like just even during the service, I'm elbowing my mom who's sitting right over here. I'm elbowing my mom going, look at that beauty of that hill. Like, can you believe the way the clouds and the light and the ocean? Like, I still marvel at it. And these kids would come down. And back then it was iPods. So, youngsters, if you want to know what an iPod is, it's like a phone, but you can't call people on it. And it dies very quickly. And they would sit down at the iPods. they put their headphones in. And I'm like, all right, guys, let's go surfing. Oh, we don't want to surf. We just want to sit here. Sit here and chill. Listen to, listen to iPod. And you're like, come on, the, the ocean awaits you. You're alive, you're young, you're healthy, let's go. And then that was my morning shift. My afternoon shift, I had this really cool opportunity to lead surf lessons for uh, Richstone, uh, I forget the whole name of the organization, but it was, it was uh, for underprivileged kids. It was for kids that lived, no lie, 15 minutes from the beach and half of them had never been to the beach before that camp. That week was, I mean, they live, they could throw a rock really far and probably hit the ocean and they've never been to the beach before with their toes in the sand. They've been confined, many of them, to two square blocks, three square blocks. That's their reality. That's their life. When they would come down, my Manhattan kids loved them. They had the best surfboards, the best stuff, cool things. These kids would have like the boogie board you bought at 
Rite Aid. You know the one, it's like foam and destroyed the second you use it. They're running down the hill. You would think that we're giving away like $1,000 a kid. Just come on down, here's your money. They're running down so fast, so excited. I couldn't get them in the water fast enough and I had to drag them out of the water. They would be in there the whole time, just thrilled. I'm telling you what, when you saw that with these kids, you go, they get it. They're captivated, but they're captured by it. There's a beauty that somehow those with the front row seats have just missed or they've become numb to. And this parable just invites us all again to remember the glory and the beauty of God, the glory of Jesus who captivated your heart, who once looked at you and lifted your chin and said, my child, I love you. And you are forgiven and your shame is gone. And so I just... I don't have like a real slick application. Here's my thought. What if this week you spent your week saying, Lord, today, can you captivate me for a minute? Just help me remember. Maybe something small. Maybe you get a little bit goofy and you sit and you marvel at a seagull. I'm like, wow, that's incredible. They can fly through the air. Or you think back and maybe your moment of sin or shame or whatever it is, you actually flip it and you go, wow. That shadow side of me, that darkness, that junk, I'm forgiven and God loves me in spite of that? Wow, captivated. And the second point I want to make out, make out, I'm thinking about my wife again. The second part I want to point out here, <laughs> I always tell my kids, kids, go ahead, I'm making out with your mom right now. I say it all the time. They love it. My kids love it. No, my daughter's mortified. I want you to look at the motivation the motivation for that big all-in investment. What drives this person to that big liquidate and invest? And there's a really important prepositional phrase. In his joy. In his joy, he went and sold everything. In his joy. That was the call. That was the emotional ambiance that led to such an extreme thing in his joy. I had a dog named Kara. That's a Greek term, Kara. We had a dog, a Dalmatian named Kara once. Something was wrong with that dog. I don't know. But this term, Kara, joy, it's such a wonderful term. And it's a defining mark. And so I, just, I guess the other part I want to clear the decks, maybe clear your palates for a minute, maybe this parable will invite us to all do that, is like what are your motivations? Your Jesus-following motivations, your motivations for investment, and things like your time and your energy and your resources and all the relationships. Like what drives you? And I, want, I suspect that if this parable is teaching us anything, the call of God is, comes with joy. Somehow, and I don't know how, I've done it probably, and a lot of us have done it, but we can mutate that into something else. Obligation. Well, you, you better do this or baby Jesus is crying. He's not happy with you. Or shame. Or guilt. Or even peer pressure slash people pleasing. It's weird as a parent how fast I can turn that on when I want my kids to do something I think is right. Um, you know, you'll make your dad very happy. 
you, you do this. It's like Bray's like, Dad, James, that's performative. Like, don't, don't use that. I'm like, oh, you're right. It's effective, though. And that could sometimes do I mean, How many of you, don't raise your hands, please, have ever done something, quote unquote, for the kingdom, but really it was so that you'd please the pastor or the person in charge of the ministry? Like, I want them to think I'm good. I want them to be like, wow, James, you did such a good job. You're so committed. We think you're one of the good ones. Like, ah, that is not, I repeat, not the motivation Jesus is talking about. In his joy, he sells out and goes all in, in his joy. And uh, I will, again, reflect as a parent, like my daughter's 12 now, and she's on that, she's incredible. Michelle is like one of my favorite people in the world. I love her. And she's in that faith journey. And as a parent, you just want them to hold the faith and to uh, go just all in. And, and you just want to somehow make it happen. Like puppet master style, just kind of make it happen for them. Like, you got to believe for me. You got you to do it. And the, the truth is, the truth is, I do not have to worry about that. I really don't. Now I'm preaching to myself. I'll rewatch the video. Marvel at my t- shirt and then hear myself say this again. I don't have to do that. If it sticks, if it's truly a call of the kingdom of God, joy will be the motivating factor. If you beg them to come, you're going to beg them to stay. Very good leadership, volunteer leadership principle. Beg them to come, you beg them to stay. Jesus is not walking around desperate for signatures. Oh, please come join my movement. I promise you it's going to be good. There's going to be some hard points, but boy, it's going to be worth it. Let me show you how good it will be. You can't leave, Peter. You can't leave. James, John, come back, please. Mary, Joanna, come back. He's not doing any of that. There's this great picture in John 6 where all of his disciples are leaving him because he gave a really hard teaching. Again, his teaching was not exactly good for the brand. And people are like, this guy's, I don't know what he's talking about. I got to go. And a bunch of disciples are leaving. He looks over to Peter and goes, hey, so Peter, you going to leave too? I mean, again, that quiet confidence. I'd be like, Peter, hey, man, just, just hold on. I'll explain it all later. Just stay back. We'll do a little afterglow, a little, a little uh, recap of what happened, and we can tell you it's okay. He doesn't do that at all. He looks at Peter and goes, Peter, you going to go? You out of here too? And Peter's like, where am I going to go? You have the words of life. As if to say, I kind of want to go, but there's nowhere else to go. Why? I've been captured by you. I've been captivated by you. I have sensed truth and power and goodness and beauty and wholeness and restoration and gentleness and humility and all those things that deep in our hearts we know are what humans are meant to be. And so Jesus does not call us with a sales pitch, but it will truly be joy when you've truly seen it. And so for some of you, especially that are checking out Jesus, looking over the fence of Christianity, hanging out, maybe someone put you in the headlock and dragged you down here, told you it was going to be like a potluck and barbecue, and you're like, no, it's not, it's church. Well, you're here now. Exits are everywhere, but please, if it's you, if that's where you're at, maybe it's like, okay, God, if you're real, if this is all true, if any of this stuff is real, show me. I want to be captivated. I want what I'm hearing that preacher up there talk about. Show it to me. And here's the cool part about that prayer. You don't have to yell it loudly. No one has to hear it. And if nothing happens, eh, you didn't lose anything but a hopefully heartfelt prayer. But the cool part, and I've seen it again and again and again, if you do start asking, 
okay, God, if you're there, Lord, I want to see you. Show me. I don't think he's going to like appear to you necessarily. That would be awesome. If he does, talk to me about it. I've never seen that happen before. But he does tend to capture us. And then in your joy, you go all in. You go all in. Uh, the last thing I'm going to say about joy, I just want to read. Todd had this great line last week. He quoted Kierkegaard. Does anyone remember that? He quoted Soren Kierkegaard, kind of existentialist Christian philosopher. And the point was suffering is one of the key, this is what Kierkegaard said, one of the key pieces of the Christian life, suffering. Now, Kierkegaard was a downer. Let's just, I'm going to be real. He was kind of a downer. Debbie Downer, this guy. Brilliant. But I mean, you would not want to hang out with him too long. It's like, come on, Kierkegaard, but everything's, it's okay. Sun's shining. But he's brilliant. But what I want to, I want to show you the comp. I, this isn't two separate sermons. Todd's bringing the downer and I'm bringing the upper and somewhere in between is your nice mix. Like the endurance of the Christian life and joy actually go together beautifully. Because what, what we're talking about here is not happiness and it's not dopamine rush flooding your brain and making you feel all the feels all the time. If that's what you think following Jesus is going to be like, you'll realize very quickly it's not there. And nothing is like that. But I want to show you how these two things come together. I mean, think about like Hebrews 12, right? Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. All right, this endurance and joy. I ha I, I'm closing with these quotes. I've been working and uh, writing, a, working on some research and some articles and a book that I'm working on right now on ancient Christian martyrs, martyr texts from the second and third century. So the generations just after the New Testament. This is what I've been swimming in for the last two, three, four, five years. And I just want to read you a couple quotes from these. This first one, comes from a text called the Letters of the Churches of Leon and Vienna to the Churches of Asia and Phrygia, otherwise known as the Martyrs of Leon. It's a second century AD during the time of Marcus Aurelius. It's a text, a letter that recounts an incredible persecution that fell on a group of Christians in southern France, modern day southern France. Then it was called Gaul. And this is the story. I mean, these people are being burned. They're being torn apart. They're being attacked by animals publicly for the enjoyment of um, entertainment of the crowd. Uh, this is uh, letter 135. The first ones, the first martyrs who came out, they came forth joyfully, with great glory and grace blended on their faces, so that even their chains were like a lovely ornament on them, like on a bride dressed in tassels of woven gold. At the same time, they smelled of the sweet odor of Christ so that some thought they were anointed with earthly perfume. The second century Christian's uh, story goes on. And I'm talking about specific martyrs now. If anyone should say the Christian life is about suffering and that's it, it should be these people. They have it way worse than you, I promise you. They subjugated them to every suffering, led them through every round of punishment, again, trying to compel them to swear to the image of the emperor and to the gods, but they were unable to accomplish it. For Ponticus, this was a young guy, 14, 15, maybe 16, he was encouraged by his sister, that is surrogate sister, Blandina, who was a slave and a woman and bled, bravely led the whole martyrs through this ordeal. Um, he was encouraged by his sister. He nobly endured every punishment and last of all came blessed Blandina. 
like a noble mother who has encouraged her children and sent them ahead to victory to the king, undergoing herself throughout all the contests, she hastened all of her children to the Lord, that is her spiritual children, rejoicing and exulting in her departure as if she were, were summoned to a wedding feast, not thrown to the beasts. Passion, Perpetua, and Felicity, early third century text. The day of their victory had dawned, and they paraded from the prison to the amphitheater as if going to heaven, joyful, their faces graceful, perhaps trembling, but not from fear, but from joy. And I have a bunch more quotes, but I'll spare you my own fascinations on them. But I just wanted to point out an extreme case. Like joy and endurance are beautifully intermingled here. And so if this parable teaches us anything, in my opinion, it's that we can be recaptured by the awe of the Lord and the goodness of the kingdom of God. Our motivations, if it's guilt and shame and obligation or even calculated, well, this should be good then I want to say you need to second guess those motivations. If it's joy that is deep, true, enduring joy, you're going to experience the peace of God in that. And finally, the joy even in suffering. It's a quiet confidence of knowing this is not meaningless pain. And even if I don't know how it's going to play out and I don't see the equation in front of me for how this pain equals something good, I can stop and say, but I know the great mathematician. I know the heart and mind and creator behind ultimate redemption. And this will lead to glory somehow. So this is it, the parable. I'm going to pray. We have some communion over here, and it's a simple, um, important reminder of the body of Jesus given for us and the blood of Jesus that um, made a way that we can say with joy, that he and the kingdom of God are good despite our circumstances and that we are safely, safely in the arms of God, not because of our performance, but because of his goodness. So let me pray and then we will take, the, take some community. You just come up, there are little boxes. I'll open the flap, there's a little wafer inside. It's from like 1982, I think, but it survives well. And there's a little bit of grape juice, which is representing the blood of Jesus. And we'll play some music. And that's our end. We don't have any other ending. It's just kind of hang out, cruise out, whatever you want to do. Have an incredible 4th of July weekend. I hope you have a lot of fun and some good remembrance and some time with family and friends. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the joy. The joy of your kingdom and the joy that drives us. And, Lord, we do pray that we'd be recaptured and captivated by you again and again. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks so much and have a great 3rd of July, everyone.